From MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, a show all about you and your rights. I'm Sherita Brin here today with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is attorney Steve Faris Sr., criminal law expert out of Ashland, Mississippi. Today we'll talk about different legal aspects of the prison system, such as incarceration rates, the cost to incarcerate people, and private prisons. You can join the conversation today at 877-MPB-RING if you have any questions or comments. The number is 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back right after the news. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is a show all about you and your rights. I'm Sharita Brent here today with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is attorney Steve Faris Sr., criminal law expert out of Ashland, Mississippi. And today we'll talk about different aspects of the prison system, such as incarceration rates, the cost to incarcerate people, and private prisons. You can join the conversation today if you have any questions or comments about prisons or the prison system. 877-MPB-RING is the number. 877-672-7464 or email. Email legal terms at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Professor Gershon and Attorney Faris. Thanks for joining. Good, good morning, Sharita. And you know, we're so lucky to have uh, Mr. Faris here today. He has uh, been on national uh, television shows and, and uh, really is a, a, a great expert and a great attorney. And we're really lucky to have him. Absolutely. Attorney, thank you so much for being on. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about your, your background in the criminal law area? Well, uh, I've been practicing since 1977. I was fortunate enough to have a father who was a great attorney, and uh, he mentored me. And uh, I've been practicing law since 77. So uh, I've had some interesting cases, and uh, I consider all of my cases important. So uh, I've learned a great deal, mainly through good judges and good district attorneys. So uh, what are some of the things that you've talked about on national TV that you would consider your expertise? Well, I don't know that I'm an expert at anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know a little about everything, which I know is a dangerous thing. But uh, I've talked about some murder cases that I've had and uh, talked about some other types of cases that I've had and generally how the criminal justice system functions. So today we're going to be talking about a huge topic. I mean, there are so many subtopics under the umbrella of the prison system, but uh, we'll try to focus on some particular things today. Well, can you start by talking about, um, first of all, what's the difference between a prison and a jail? Well, there's probably no difference if you're the one inside of them. Hmm. But uh, the real difference is your your jails are county-run. They're county-budgeted. Uh, there are agreements between the state and the counties to house state prisoners in county facilities for certain periods of time. But generally, the prisons are looked upon as the state facility 
to handle uh, offenders who have been sentenced out of the various counties in Mississippi. So um, are state facilities still subject to federal laws or, or do they or is it a separate set? No, yes, uh, both uh, jails and the state facilities are subject to federal laws, and you have certain standards that they're required to adhere to. They have to be accredited. In other words, let's say Lafayette County Detention Center here in Oxford, it would have to be accredited before it would be allowed to house state prisoners. Mississippi uh, State Prison, which is the most known one, of course, is Parchment. They have to also be accredited. So, so what does that mean? What would make uh, a system, a prison system, lose its uh, its accreditation? Well, it, it has a, a lot of uh, criteria in that. You know, one of the things the when you say standards, I understand that's a general term. But it has to do with the treatment of prisoners, the safety of prisoners, the safety to the public, how the prisoners are fed, a whole litany of criteria. Now, would you say that this is an area um, that needs a lot of attention, like prisoner safety? Are, uh, are people failing in this area uh, around the world? Well, I don't know about around the world. Uh, I, I think certainly our prison system can be improved. I think we've had a, a recent uh, occurrence in the state of Mississippi uh, dealing with bribery. Um, that's certainly troubling and should be troubling to the entire system, to the Mississippi legislature and those who govern us. Um, one of the things that personally has always bothered me is violence in prison. Um, understanding that, that there are two views on this. Number one, prisons are not supposed to be a happy place. Mm. We understand that. However, as far as a human rights viewpoint, certainly we could do better to protect prisoners, especially uh, vulnerable prisoners, older prisoners, younger prisoners, sick prisoners, and uh, from from violence that, that occurs almost every day. One more thing. Uh, it bothers me when I'm watching TV shows, whether they be comedy or serious shows, and they're always joking about getting raped in prison. Mm. To me, that's no joking matter. Uh, that's something that needs to be attended to. It needs to be ended, and there's no excuse for that to happen. So you, you mentioned a couple things that, that caught my ear. Uh, first of all, human rights of prisoners. Um, I don't know if this is something that people think about or even think that it is fair, but how are prisoners supposed to know what rights they have in prison? Well, that's, again, that's part of the spider web of the problem. First of all, you have to have trained individuals to oversee these prisoners, whether they be counselors, case managers, whatever you want to call them. Uh, they have to have a place also, like a law library, which has always been a controversial thing, especially in our state, a place where they can go and seek help to understand uh, what rights they do have as an incarcerated citizen. We can do much better in training um, uh, those who attend to prisoners in our state institution. And to me, that's that's one of the things that needs to be looked at immediately. Of course, then you talk about budgets, 
You talk about money, and the next thing you know, the legislative session is over and nothing's been done. Hmm. So um, could you talk a little bit more just from your experience about uh, the culture of prisons? I mean, when I'm watching the news, I often hear of prison riots and uh, they seem to get really, really out of hand. Uh, so is it like a lot of gangs? Um, what What is the, the prison culture that causes prison riots? Well, I can't give a definitive answer to that. I, I can tell you from my experience, when you ask, number one, are there gangs? You dead gum right, they're gangs. Uh, uh, they're white gangs, they're black gangs, they're Asian gangs, they're Hispanic gangs. Uh, if you think about it, if you get a great group of people, a diverse group of people, they're u- usually going to gravitate to their own. I think that's what happens in prisons. Uh, they have a place to commiserate with each other, to talk about the wrongs, to talk about maybe someone else getting preferential treatment. And this breeds uh, some type of hostility. You also have to keep in mind that there are some certain members of the prison population who are violent people. Uh, you have others who may be leaders. You may have those who are instigators. So it's a small, compact society that is not free. So, you know, there are a plethora of problems when you try to investigate what causes prison riots. For instance, I think we recently had one in Delaware, I think I'm correct, um, in one of the northern states. And, you know, one of the reports was, well, it was about Donald Trump. Well, I think that was just the fuse. I think they were looking for a reason to riot because they had not been treated fairly in their eyes. Maybe their food wasn't of a a certain quality or a certain amount, but certainly unfairness to prisoners occur in prisons. All right. uh, We need to take a quick break and when we get back, uh, we'll continue talking about different aspects of the prison system. We'll talk about incarceration rates, uh, the cost to incarcerate people, and we'll get into private prisons as well. We'll also talk about uh, the kinds of resources that may be available in prisons, such as as academic resources or medical resources. If you're listening this morning and you have any questions or comments about the prison system, the way it works, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. If you have any questions about the human rights of prisoners, 877 672-7464 is the number, or you can email legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. MPB. 
And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent, joined today by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is attorney Steve Faris, Sr., criminal law expert out of Ashland, Mississippi. And today we're talking about different aspects of the prison system. We'll get into incarceration rates, the cost to incarcerate people, and also private prisons. If you're listening this morning and you have any questions or comments about the prison system, maybe questions about human rights of prisoners, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. Anything you have questions or comments about, the number is 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. All right, we're going to, we're going to go to the phones. Uh, Rick is in Grand Bay with a question. Good morning to you, Rick. Good morning. Hey. I want to give you all a view from the inside rather than y'all looking from the outside. Okay. I did 13 years. The majority of the people that I saw in prison really shouldn't be in prison. Hmm. And why do you uh, say that? Well, number one, they really aren't there. They they were not found guilty or pled guilty to the charge that they actually committed. Number two, 85% of them were in there for not just nonviolent drug charges. Mm-hmm. And we know that, you know, treatment is a lot better than, than prison. Punishment never worked. I stood in the corner. My, my, I don't know how many times I was put in the corner when I was a kid. Didn't make me do right. But uh, my, my, my comment is, the, uh, or my question is, uh, does anybody there know anything about restorative justice in the criminal justice system, and is and in the uh, in the in the correctional system is a a way of uh, fixing something? Actually, corrections what what needs to be fixed? The offender don't get fixed. I mean, the thing that needs to be fixed is the rift that's caused in community. How do we do that? I mean, putting a guy away and just ostracizing him for the rest of his life that doesn't fix anything. But uh, I just thought I'd give my give my little two cents there. And hey. as for rape, as for rape, mm-hmm. I did thirteen years. If I saw one rape, it was a lot. Wow! What you see on what you see on TV, it's not the real deal. And uh, but I, I, I'll let y'all go. I just thought I'd give y'all a little bit of glimpse from the uh, from the inside looking out. Okay, Rick. Oh, we have a really day. appreciate. Thank you, Rick. You have a blessed day, too. Really, really appreciate you calling in. Um, any immediate thoughts in response to Rick's comments, uh, Attorney Faris? Oh, first of all, I'd like to thank Rick for calling in. And, and it's always better to have a perspective from the inside than the outside. He He's absolutely correct. And I think he's hit the nail on the head. We have all of these uh, low-level in quotation marks, drug offenders taking up space, being warehoused in our prisons. They have absolutely no business there. You know, our system is called the Department of Corrections in Mississippi, which I think is a misnomer. Uh, You know, it it should be the uh, Department of Penalty because uh, what we're doing is um, penalizing people for their actions rather than trying to get to the core issue of while they're why they are there. Of course, everyone knows or should know that one of the core reasons is poverty. Uh, the other core reason is education. If you look at the data on Mississippi and see where we are on the educational rung, it is frightening. Uh, if you see where we are on the poverty rung, it is frightening. And if you can't put those things together and realize that is the core cause of our difficulty with uh, the offenders today, then you have blinders on. 
uh, you know, we keep having, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying very hard not to be political here, but we keep having issues brought up by our legislators that are nothing more than a distraction from the real problem. Uh, we want to talk about flags. We want to talk about guns. And I understand those are important issues for some people, but I, I, I would, I would submit to the listening audience that, um, putting people in jail and taking away their liberty goes against what our country is all about. What do we look at most of all uh, as being the greatest asset of our country and of being an American? That is freedom, and it really bothers me. And, Steve, I mean, it seems to me when we incarcerate somebody, that means we as a society have failed in some way, you know, that mm. uh, to, to try to prevent that from happening. And, you know, we put so much money in in the back end building new prisons and I always feel like, you know, I'm a big believer in, in uh, preventive medicine, too. You know, that people eat right and exercise that, you know, that'll cut down on, on health care expenses. It seems to me the same way with, with what we do with prisons is we, we put all this money into prisons. And, and, but we cut back on education and we cut back on, on programs for the poor. And uh, that seems self-defeating. And at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're, we're just uh, admitting defeat and putting people away. Well is, um, again, my parents taught me never talk about politics or religion, and I'm violating both of those warnings today. But as I've said in court many times, if uh, one considers themselves to be a Christian, this is certainly not Christian-like to me. Uh, now, in defense of uh, some of our judges and some of our prosecutors, um, I've noticed that they try very hard not to um, put pri people in prison. That has occurred recently. Over the last five or six years, I've noticed that trend. In Tennessee, where I practice a lot, they have a law that says the judges have to look before sentencing at the, most, at the least punishment they could give an offender as long as it satisfies protecting the public, protecting others, and things of that nature. I think that's what Mississippi needs to look at. What is the uh, least way, the minimal way of punishing someone? Uh, I've got some more to say on that matter, but, but I'm going to stop now and let other questions. All right. Uh, Joshua is in Jackson with a comment. Good morning to you, Joshua. What do you have for us? Uh, well, I, I know you haven't gotten to this subject yet, but uh, I, I just wanted to make a comment about um, uh, private prisons. Um, it seems to me that they, uh, well, the fact that they're making a profit on people being in prison, um, uh, well, that kind of, if it's a profit-driven um, situation, then, you know, they're not, they make money by people being in prison. It seems like they, they would keep them in there as long as they possibly could uh, in order to make more money. And uh, it seems to me it's just a fundamentally flawed idea and, and, and simply wrong. And uh, I'd like to know how we even got to that point um, uh, where, where they privatize prisons and make money off, off it. 
Okay. Thank you for that uh, call and, and question, Joshua. We can touch on it a little bit right now. So, uh, Attorney Fariz, how far uh, do private prisons go back, uh, for-profit prisons and, um, you know, these private companies taking over? I, I read at some point it was supposedly more cost-efficient and maybe that private companies would do a better job at regulating prisons than the government. Uh, could you give us some clarity on that? Well, I don't know if I can give you some clarity, but I can certainly give you an opinion. Um, I remember in the 90s, I, I was um, the attorney for the Board of Supervisors in Marshall County, Mississippi, when uh, it was proposed to us that they wanted to build a prison. Uh, at this point in time, it was an economic decision by the Board of Supervisors. They were promised X number of jobs. They would have local employees. It would be a revenue stream for the um, county. Um, I remember going to the legislature and arguing on behalf of my board of supervisors, and uh, it's one of the things in life I wish I could take back, but but I did. And we were given all these promises of uh, it would be cheaper on the state when, in fact, that data has shown that not to be true. I think we're going to discuss this a little more. Um, uh, the professor has some comments, and I'll come back and make some more comments on this private system. First of all, Joshua, before uh, I turn my mic over, uh, that's a great question. Uh, in fact, Sharita, I'm, I'm impressed with both callers today that they're they're hitting the nail right on the head. Yeah. Yeah, and I really can't add much to what Joshua said because, the, to me, the big problem with private prisons is that you want to keep the beds full, right? And so mm. there's an incentive to uh, work with the, the criminal justice system to try to make sure sentences are longer because then you've got longer-term uh, commitments to your, your bed being full. You know, there's there's just that involved. The other thing um, uh, is that the training that goes on uh, for the, the guards in those private prisons is not nearly as extensive as it is in, in the state-run penitentiaries. Uh, my understanding is that the prisoners, who are many of them who are brought in from out of state, uh, like places like California where their prisons are full, to fill the beds here, um, basically play video games all day because there's no training, there's no nothing that's really rehabilitative, because they're trying to cut costs on on things like guards and other other uh, costs as well. I mean, there's some some things in our society that should not be run through a capitalist system, to be perfectly honest, and prisons are one of them. And and I agree wholeheartedly, and, and uh, I don't know if it was the professor or uh, Joshua who said that something is fundamentally wrong when you have a for-profit operation that uses human beings as its raw product. Uh, this is very troubling. Uh, we've seen this again recently in, in the bribery uh, charges that have recently been brought by the federal government. I think they're going to see it runs mo much deeper than this one case. Uh, I'm against private prisons. I'm against shipping prisons, prisoners across state lines uh, just to fill up beds and just for people to make money on it. You know, another thing is if you have a for-profit system, then any business wants to cut costs. Well, where can you cut costs? Well, we can cut costs on the number of calories we feed our prisoners per day. We can cut costs on counselors. We can cut costs on educational opportunities. And uh, it is it is problematic. It's at least problematic. All right, Joshua, thank you so much for that call. We really appreciate it. 
Uh, we're going to stay on the phones. We have more to get to. Shabazz is in Hattiesburg with a comment. Good morning, Shabazz. What do you have for us? Uh, yes, uh, thank you for taking my call. I um, Can you hear me? Yes. I, I, I think that um, this this thing about uh, incarceration, it, it it's a huge uh, ball of wax here. First of all, um, uh, it's the environment that a lot of people live in. Uh, you know, I remember back in the 60s when I was growing up, uh, and I'm just going to try briefly as I can to link these different things together. The, the influences that came into the community was very positive. It was very family-oriented, even the media, even the music, et cetera, et cetera. But now those things have began to uh, influence uh, rebellion, disrespectful authority, uh, immoral activity, family breakup. Uh, sex out of wedlock, so you have unwed mothers and fathers who don't care about the children. And so it leads to eventually to a life of crime, uh, potentially for too many people. The second thing is that I got a call from a friend of mine the other day. He was, he had, he was in jail for 15, 20 years for just one, one marijuana cigarette. Mm -hmm. These prison for profit. Is very real. Uh, a judge uh, just recently got sentenced to 28 years, I think, for convicting uh, young African-American children and, and selling them, just so to speak. It was like an auction block uh, type thing, uh, selling them to the uh, profit for, for prison, uh, prison for profit system. So, so I think that this thing about the prison system, it has to be dealt with. First of all, with uh, and the whole scheme of things, you know, the, the the federal communication people just completely drop their standards and so far as regulating how you know information and influences that come through the media, and it has been devastating, uh, especially the African American community. So um, and it leads right to prison, and and I think that that whole profit prison for profit thing should be definitely abolished because it, it, it's only modern-day slavery, and especially when you've got prisons that uh, manufacturing product and, uh, for, the, for, the, for the general market, for the open market, and making a profit off of the incarceration of, of uh, human beings. Thank you so much. Okay. It could have been a little bit more clearer. But. No, you're very clear, Shabazz. We, we appreciate your calling, your comments. Uh, attorneys, any, any response to that? Well, I think Shabazz makes some great points. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the thing that um, and, and Steve actually has statistics that, uh, you know, in terms of incarceration rates and things like that, that we'll get into. But, you know, the, the idea that somebody would be in prison for a long time over a marijuana cigarette, those are, again, systemic issues and systemic problems. That's not a violent crime. Uh, and, uh, you know, the privatization, you know, we're, we're, again, the idea that to have that commodity, to have that bed full is so important to the sustainability of that prison is, uh, is just, that's just not how the system should operate. Uh, I think Shabazz covered uh, <clears throat> a number of, of different issues, um, all dovetailing to the same problem. He talks about the breakdown of the community and the family. I think he's absolutely correct. Um, there has been a breakdown of uh, social values, of mores. There's no question about that. We have less people going to church. Uh, all of those things are certainly present. 
But again, I think we get back, and, and I think he touched on it, that we get back to the poverty level and a sense of helplessness and hopelessness that people have when they don't have an ability to pull themselves out of the muck to get a good job or to have an opportunity to get a good job because of lack of education and or social status, it, it becomes a helpless and hopeless feeling, and, and there is a rebellion. Uh, uh, a rebellion goes on. I think any human being would uh, feel the same way. They may not express themselves the same way, but would feel the same way. Uh, and he's right also about, you know, the indentured servitude of, of prisons for profit that, that may or may not manufacture goods. But uh, this this is a serious problem that nobody wants to address. Everybody wants people locked up. Well, if they do, they need to understand they're having to pay for it. And I think when they realize how it affects the state budget how it affects their pocketbooks, then their tunes may change. All right. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that after the break. And we also have some calls to get to. So Eddie, Mary, and Leo, if you could hold on, uh, we'll get to you guys right after the break. The number is 877-MPB-RING. If you have any questions or comments about the prison system, that's what we're talking about this morning. 877-672-7464 is the number. Or you can send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent, joined today by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest is attorney Steve Faris, Sr., criminal law expert out of Ashland, Mississippi. And today we've been talking about different aspects of the prison system, incarceration rates. We'll talk in just a moment about the cost to incorporate, uh, incarcerate people, rather, and private prisons. Um, so before we get back to the calls, because we have a lot to get to, uh, Attorney Faris, could you kind of elaborate? You, you said that, you know, incarcerating people affects the state's budget. Um, are there numbers out there about how much it costs to incarcerate folks? There are, and you can, uh, I'm looking at 2012 data. You can go to websites, Mississippi Department of Correction websites, Mississippi State Government websites, and you can get these figures. But <clears throat> just for example... In 2012, it was $52.18 a day at the Mississippi State Penitentiary. Uh, so all you have to do is do the math on this and realize how much it costs to keep a prisoner per year. Uh, the other thing is, you know, <laughs> in the United States, our prison population is 2,193,798. At some of the latest data, of course, that fluctuates. Uh, we have five percent of the world population, yet we have twenty-five percent of the world's incarcerated population. There's something wrong with our system 
where we have more people in prison than Red China and the Soviet Union or Russia. And, and we do. We lead the, the world in incarcerating people. And I believe one of the reasons that is, is that has occurred is it has become a business. Uh, it provides jobs for people in Mississippi to work in prisons. It provides jobs for transporting, transporting these prisoners to the various counties. And we're looking at this through the wrong side of the mirror. Mm-hmm. And uh, this Alice in Wonderland type of thought process in an upside-down world is not working And it's certainly not right. You know, there's an old saying that just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should do it. Just because you can put people in prison uh, doesn't mean you should put them in prison. And the problem is the political process and the uh, economic gain by certain people. No judge is going to put a commercial on TV, patting a criminal or someone who has broken the law on the back. They want to kiss babies and protect people. And that's what your commercials show. So, you know, we've, we've got a real problem, not just in Mississippi, but in training the thought of our population in this country to look at punishment in a different way. All right. Hmm. We're going to go back to the phone. Uh, Eddie is in Mississippi with a comment. Good morning, Eddie. Thank you for waiting. What do you have for us? Good morning. Thank you. Um, I was uh, incarcerated in Oklahoma, but I'm originally from Chicago. And when I moved to Oklahoma, you know, life was a little different. Where I come from, it was a little, you know, wild. You're kidding. (laughs) Anything I do, you know, it was kind of, it stood out. So I got in some trouble out there. Got locked up in uh, the Oklahoma County Jail, and it was real crowded in there, nasty, you know, like you're being mistreated in there. So I couldn't fight my my case because I had a public defender, which we call public pretenders. And all they want to do is just get you some time. So I'm sitting in there for months trying to fight it, and I got tired of all the nastiness in that county, so it made me sign for time just to get out of there. I got locked up. It was crowded in there. They, I had a nonviolent case. They put me around violent criminals with life sentences. I only had one or two years to do. So anything that I talked about in there, some life, some lifers didn't want to hear that. You know, they would actually probably be mad that you're getting out. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. then when I got when I got out, it was hard for me to end too because I had restitution, child support, all kind of things I had to pay, and it was hard for me to get a job. You know, so. Eddie, thank you for calling and and sharing your experience. And um, attorney, if you could, um, oh, you can respond to Eddie first. But I also wanted you to touch on like the number of people or just the cases in your experience that you've seen of people who are in there for nonviolent offen- offenses and they're just waiting on their day in court, and time just passes by. I mean, a lo- well, are a lot of these cases backed up? Well, well they're backed up. And, oh, excuse me. Yeah, they're backed up, and then. You, you like you have a court date set. When you go to court, you go there. Don't even see a judge. Sometimes you don't even see a public defender. You just went for nothing. And you have Eddie, to Eddie, I certainly understand everything you've said. I've seen everything you've said. 
I, I want to clarify one thing that that I've seen a lot of good public defenders and I've seen bad public defenders. One of the things, the problems with public defenders is they're just so overwhelmed with so many cases. It's hard for them to dedicate the time necessary. And, and it shouldn't be, but that's the way it is. Uh, I, I think what Eddie is saying, and Eddie, you know, uh, you need to look at these statistics before you move to another state because when you went from Illinois to uh, Oklahoma, Oklahoma is the second leading state in incarceration. Mm. Um, you might say, well, who would have guessed it? Well, certainly I would have. But what, what I'm saying is that uh, we have um, leading off, Louisiana is leading. Uh, they're number one right now, but... but um, uh, Oklahoma's right on their heels, followed by Arkansas, Mississippi, Arizona, Texas. Well, <laughs> th- this is not a, a lineup of the top football teams in the nation, but it certainly uh, shows the type of political atmosphere in each one of these states as far as locking people up, throwing away the key, putting them in a uh, overcrowded place, putting them in a dangerous place, putting them in a nasty place. Now, keep in mind, there are those people that need to be locked up. There are those people that need to be punished for for heinous and serious crimes. But um, low-level drug cases, this this carries a a scarlet letter on these people for the rest of their lives. You just heard the vicious cycle that occurs. They go to jail. They can't, they get out. They're behind in child support. Uh, they can't get a good job. A lot of them can't get their driver's license. Uh, they certainly can't have afford health insurance and all of the things that, that most citizens uh, require. And this vicious cycle continues and they never get out of it. It's like a gerbil in a cage. They're running as fast as they can. They're just not getting anywhere. All right, Eddie, thank you for your call, and uh, hope really hope that things get better for you. Um, we're going to stay on the phones. Leo is in scuba with a comment. Good morning, Leo. What do you have for us? Everything everybody has said this morning is correct, and the, the last couple of gentlemen about your jobs, incarceration, all that stuff, but I just there's one thing I had to say. Why is it now they finna pass a law in Louisiana, they done passed it, if, if a police officer or something like that feels threatened, you threaten his life, it's 20 years or something like that. That is aimed to me is, is, is for, the, for the black people. And I think that is totally wrong. And I think it's very wrong for it to come to Mississippi because it's a setup for the, for the, for the black people. Number two, your jobs. If you go to prison and you do your time and you're a modern citizen, you ain't did nothing in 20 or 30 years, why can't you get a good job? And on top of that, if you're not a citizen of the United uh, uh, Mississippi when you get out because you got a felony, what the crap are you paying taxes for? Hmm. So you know it's crazy. Okay, Leo, we're going to get some uh, some thoughts on that. Um, as as our previous caller said, attorneys, uh, I, I hear these stories of folks who just can't get a job and uh, you know even low level jobs um, after coming out of the prison system. So, what are your thoughts on Leo's comments? Well, I, I think Leo's absolutely correct again. I think all of our callers have had something productive to add to the conversation. Um, as far as the law in Louisiana, as far as increasing penalties, maybe for threatening a, a law officer's not, 
you know, that's a two-edged sword. Uh, I, I'd rather discuss something like that on a case-by-case basis. But what 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 Leo says is that it's race-related. And uh, unless you're Leo, uh, you know, you don't know how to argue with that. Um, I, I think that it probably uh, could be could be race-related. I'm not sure that that's the whole idea behind that provision, if it does exist, but it certainly could be. And and I'm not uh, minimizing his argument in any way. His other question was uh, talking about jobs. Well, the problem is we have people get out their own parole. Uh, people in manufacturing and other areas are afraid to hire them because of liability issues. So there are a lot of of issues, it's my belief of this personally, from a personal perspective, that once someone has served their time, uh, they should be eligible to work. They have paid their price to society. They should not be marked for the rest of their lives. Uh, that is absolutely wrong, and and we need to take some steps to remedy. Uh, that cloud that hangs over them for the rest of their lives. It's just not right. Um, attorney, are there any educational or mental health resources available for prisoners so when they do get out, they may be in a better position? <laughs> you like- know, there are some programs, some educational programs, and, and I think there's some programs to help people get their GEDs, and I'm sure the people that work in their program, those programs do their best. But there are not enough programs. There are not enough uh, resources for those programs. Uh, there are not enough people to teach these programs. So, um, and then when you slice it the other way and you, you add in mental health, listen, let me tell you something. We have people in prisons that have absolutely no business being there. They need to be in mental health facilities. We are a McNaughton sta- uh, rule state, uh, which is one of the most strict rules you can have to be declared to be mentally incompetent for uh, to be held responsible for the crime and or to stand trial. And it's been my experience that if you come in there dressed in a count's clown suit, wearing big shoes and a red nose, and you've got a chainsaw, they are still going to find you competent to stand trial. And we need to do something about this. We don't have enough beds at um, um, Whitfield to handle people, to be evaluated, and we don't have the correct prison facilities if we're going to put them in a prison to handle mentally unstable, unstable prisoners, and that is a crime. All right. Uh, we're going to stay on the phones. Mary is in Oxford with a comment. Good morning to you, Mary. What do you have for us today? Okay, I'm going to put you back on hold, Mary, see if we can uh, get that connectivity issue worked out. We're going to go next to Frank, who's in Jackson. Good morning to you, Frank. What do you have for us today? Yes, uh, I'd like to relay one little short story and then a comment. During the Black Lives Matter issues, I was listening to talk radio, and this white lady got on the air complaining that the same atrocities that are being committed against blacks are also being committed against whites. And she wanted to know how come the Black Lives Matter movement is not talking about the white problem. And the answer was, lady, 
if you white folks want to have something done about police brutality of white folks, do like the Black Lives Matter people. Get three or four hundred of your friends out there and demonstrate. Want to believe that the prison problem is a black problem. It's not. Of those two and a half to three million people who are locked up, 70 percent of them are white. And they are being abused just as much as the black folks. What has happened in this country, the techniques that have been perfected since slavery and Jim Crow and everything else against black folks and minorities are now being used against white folks. Predatory lending in the black community, and when they had the uh, stock market crash of the subprime loan, 70% of the people who lost their homes were white. Predatory lending has now gotten into the issue of college lending, the same techniques that they use. Okay. Um, all right. Um so those are some uh, interesting things presented there by uh, Frank attorneys. Uh, any? Do you have any thoughts on some of the statistics that he suggested? Interesting, Frank. I mean, interesting statistics. I think uh, Steve actually has those exact statistics in terms of the percentages of whites and blacks incarcerated. I mean, systemically, I think really it's a question, question really more of socioeconomics than it is a race at this point. It's about poverty. Uh, it's about income inequality. And it's about the fact that that people who have uh, positions where they can't get good jobs, where they're in constant state of poverty, whether they're white, black, or otherwise, they're going to have issues in this country, and they're not. There's not a support system based uh, to, to to help them. Uh, I think uh, another matter, Frank, hit on, and, and Frank, I want you to know, I certainly understood your other issues. Um, we're talking today mainly about the prison system and things of that nature. And that's when we're not ignoring your question. We're just trying to stay on track. Um, Frank brought up a, a, a great point, and, and that is it is not just about black people being abused in the prisons. Uh, white people are being abused there also, I, I think the the genesis of this is has been the the great disparity in wealth that has occurred over the years. So you have a greater number of people that at one time were considered middle class and now are bordering on the poverty level, and that goes back to our argument that that poverty breeds this sort of activity poverty um, lack of education breeds these types of feelings that sometimes act out in the form of criminal behavior all right and we uh, have a couple calls to get to manual uh is in cleveland oh, i'm sorry manual we're going to go back to mary really quickly we got her uh, uh connectivity issue worked out then we'll go to you manual good morning mary in oxford what's your comment i have um uh, some uh, feelings about the program. I, I want to applaud everyone who is calling in and also the participants on the program for hitting uh, issues that everyone is concerned about one way or another. But I also wanted to say that prisoners are still citizens and have human rights. The institutions are punitive, like uh, you all have pointed out. They're not corrective. The laws themselves that have put them there are not uh, corrective, and despite some people's um, efforts, like Louis Bourgeois and Parchman and others, 
to help the prisoners with education so the, the laws and the practices are not corrected. What we need there is to have intensive programming to train these people to be citizens. They should have civics, they should have family training, training, job training, health training, and then when they leave, they should have help to get jobs, housing, and their citizens' rights back, like voting. In Mississippi, it's difficult to get your voting rights back. They need to be aware of how to do that. I was registering people for voting in Oxford this last year. Had a young man come up with two small children who wanted to vote, and he didn't know how to go about it. So um, I think that we should uh, train people before they get out how to go about getting their rights back. And like you say, private prisons are money makers. Build them, and they will come, just like molecules. And another thing I thought might be helpful is the cost. How much would it cost to eliminate poverty and lack of education in Mississippi as opposed to incarceration? All right. They really have true lawyers for the indigenous. The Southern Poverty Law Center finds people poorly defended, and often they don't need the incarceration that they get. All right. Mary, thank you so much for, for those comments. Um, uh, we have one more call to get to. Manuel is in Cleveland. Good morning, Manuel. We have about 45 seconds left. Good morning. I just have a comment about the incarceration uh, for nonviolent uh, drug offenders. Uh, I've dealt with it personally for the last 15 years. I've got a brother who uh, is incarcerated at Parchman, and uh, um, he's a nonviolent you know, uh, drug offender. And I just wanted to say I want to thank God to, for you guys who I ever brought this topic up because I don't ever, before that I can remember, uh, remember a discussion like this uh, where it's, it's touched my heart this morning because I'm um, it's kind of delicate here more to make things more confusing. My brother, not only is he incarcerated as a non-offender, he's also legally blind, living mm-hmm. in, in the normal population. And we have a fear because my family has this hereditary eye disease uh, where it just, you know, disintegrates with vision pretty much, retinitis pigmentosis. And we've been trying to deal with uh, Parsman uh, about, um, you know, trying to get him to a facility where he can not only be in harm for himself or anyone else, uh, you know, for safety purposes because uh, there was a situation with him where he accidentally just because he just can't see. Okay, Manuel, I'm sorry. We've reached the end of the show. We're not going to be able to finish that thought. But thank you for calling in, and we're glad that the show was helpful to you today. Attorney Faris and Professor Gershon, thank you both for being on as well.